if we have a homogeneous group of people who are running the show, you know, there's a whole host of opinions and insights and talent that we're losing out on. To have it more representative of, of society and to have role models there for, for all students from everywhere and from all backgrounds. You're listening to the Class Acts podcast, an initiative of UCD Conway Institute, a research institute based in University College Dublin. My name is Elaine Quinn. In this podcast series, we want to introduce you to scientists at the heart of fascinating new research here in the Institute. What motivated our researchers to pursue a career in science? What journeys have they taken along their career path? What areas of research are they pursuing? How have their careers been influenced by mentorship along the way? Some of these scientists have long established research groups in the Institute, while others have just begun to build their own teams here in UCD. All of them have spoken about their work in our weekly Conway Lecture and Seminar series, or CLASS for short. Our host is Dr Owen Cummins, Assistant Professor of Physiology in UCD School of Medicine and a Conway Fellow. Owen leads a research group studying how carbon dioxide and oxygen affect cellular behaviour. Owen is also passionate about educating the next generation of scientists and medics and actively contributes to equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives within UCD. He was inspired to create the Class Acts podcast to share the many and varied backgrounds and journeys taken by Conway researchers on their routes to scientific success. In episode five, Dr. Owen Cummins talks with Professor Neve Nolan from the UCD School of Mechanical and Materials Engineering, who is a Conway Fellow. Attending a university open day first sparked Neve's interest in engineering. And she describes how her own medical history has influenced her career in many countries and institutes in Ireland, the UK, Spain, and the United States. Neve outlines her vision for the future as a leader and researcher in UCD. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast, where we'll be speaking with Professor Neve Nolan, a professor in the School of Mechanical and Materials Engineering in UCD. Neve, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Owen. So Neve, just going to start off uh, trying to get a little bit of insight into what drew you into a career in engineering and science uh, in the in the first place. So, bringing you back maybe to your maybe to your childhood or to or to school. When when did you first realise that this was was an interest of yours? Yeah, I mean, in secondary school, I kind of I didn't really know what to do. At one stage, I thought I wanted to do, be a journalist, um, and another stage, I thought I, I wanted to do advertising. I think because of the I was interested in art. Um, but then, when I was in transition year, I think it was I did a, a week, like an engineering week, it was actually in my my dad worked in the in ICT in Trinity College Dublin, and um, there was a, a workshop they were doing on engineering and they organized it for, for school students and they did a day in each of the different um, departments as they were then. Um, and, after, and I just, yeah, I thought it was amazing that the, the kind of variation and the variety of things that could be done in engineering and the idea that if you get an engineering training that, uh, you know, you could really do anything afterwards that, that um, you know, even if you study, say, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, you have a basic engineering training, you have the the maths, the kind of uh, mindset 
Um, and so from then on, from transition year, I was very much um, keen on, on studying engineering. So I, so I ended up going to Trinity and in Trinity, the first two years are common between all the engineering streams. Uh, and I um, had an interest in, in mechanical engineering because I, I, I was uh, interested in, in the biomedical side of things. Um, as it turned out, I really enjoyed computer programming uh, in first and second year, even though I had never done any, you know, programming before it, um, and, uh, decided then to do computer engineering, uh, in, and, and that's what I spent my last two years on. Um, I thought then I decided to, to then do a master's. So an MSc in biomedical engineering, uh, in also in Trinity, uh, but then a couple of the professors uh, happened to to mention it to me that they thought maybe I might like to do a PhD or might be a good candidate for a PhD. I had never actually, I had never considered it. Um, I didn't really know what a PhD was, uh, you know. Um, but uh, so it was actually Padraig Cunningham, who's in, who's now in UCG, and Linda Doyle, who's just the newly appointed um, provost of Trinity, who who mentioned to me. Um, so, you know, really I have them to thank for putting me on that path to doing a PhD. It's uh, not, it's not always required as a, as a, a an element of a, an engineer's career progression. So, you know, a lot of them would, would go into, as you said, practice in civil engineering or, or chemical engineering after their degree. So, so, so what was it? So how did you merge the interest in, in computing or, you know, the computer side of, of engineering with, uh, with biomedical engineering? So yes, yeah, so, or were they or were they aligned in any way? So I was lucky enough to get a, a scholarship, and and that's what really enabled me to start the PhD. So um, the Irish Research Council, or ERCSET as it was then, so I got a studentship from them, and and the project was about computational uh, modeling of evolution of bone. So the the PhD was with the um, Professor Patrick Prendergast, who's who's just the outgoing Provost of Trinity, uh, just finished his term, um, and his his bone and biomechanics is, uh, was his uh, interest at the time or one of his interests, I should say. And, and so the first year of my PhD was, was, was computational simulation, computational modeling of bone evolution. And, and that was nice. And we published a paper on that, which was great. But then Paddy met a developmental biologist, uh, Paul Murphy, who's, who's in Trinity as well. And, um, they decided that they wanted to collaborate and, uh, they had some ideas on, on, you know, bone and bone development. And, um, when I, so, so, th- so what I started, so I spent some time in the lab with Paula, so in developmental biology in the zoology department. And, uh, I was, I was basically blown away by development. You know, I didn't know, I, I didn't actually study biology in uh, secondary school. So for leaving cert, uh, so I didn't, you know, um, hadn't had much exposure to it. And, um, so Paula works on, on, among other things, chick, chick embryo development. And so, you know, we were in the lab looking at these little tiny chick embryos moving around. And then I was looking at their, how their bones develop. Um, I just thought it was amazing. And, and so, so from then, so my PhD kind of pivoted then at that point and moved to being on the role of movement and mechanical forces. So that's where the mechanical engineering comes in, uh, on, uh, prenatal skeletal development, um, or embryonic skeletal development. And that must have been a really 
challenging time not having had a huge amount of exposure to a, a biological background at that stage did you find it a, a huge learning curve or was it something that sort of came more organically to you as you spent time in the lab and got exposure to the different types of experiments that are performed yeah so i i mean i was winging it a lot of the time so i did you know i got i bought you know you know lewin's genetics book and a big massive developmental biology book and you know they sat there for my whole phd you know i never i mean i tried to read them but you know i'd sit down and I'd just get too heavy too fast so i learned as i went basically um and obviously made mistakes along the way, you know, I was doing in situ hybridization and threw out, you know, the thing I'd been working for three weeks to get, which was the tiny amount of probe, I, I threw out most of it because I thought it was a byproduct rather than the goal. So, you know, there was definitely uh, mistakes. Um, and I mean, the, so strat, you know, if you kind of, if you're strat, and I, I mean, I have continued on the same path of between developmental biology and the engineering and the mechanics uh, and modeling actually as well. Um, you, you do end up a bit of a, you know, um, jack of all trades and master of none. Um, and, and that can be a downside where, you know, if, if you're talking to developmental biologists, uh, they often assume a sort of, um, base level of understanding that I might only have a very hazy, hazy, um, um, understanding of, but then, you know, then if, you know, once you come to write a grant on something or write a paper on something, you know, you, you upscale very quickly in the areas that you need to. And so, so that was that was the the main focus of your your PhD in Trinity. So, so you were obviously sufficiently interested and excited in the field to to continue your studies and continue your work in this in this space. So, so where did you go next? Yeah, so I followed that again from Erkset. Uh, I got a postdoctoral fellowship to uh, explore the same idea, uh, except on mouse bone development rather than chick bone development. Um, and that was great uh, during that time as well. I also, I got a Fulbright scholarship to go to the US um, and I was in Boston University there. And again, went back to the modeling side of things. Again, actually evolution. So kind of returning to what I started off my PhD on. So so different to the developmental biology side, um, but great to kind of make links in the US and, and um, um, to have that opportunity. Um, after that, I went to, um, switched back again to the developmental biology, um, focus. So I went to Barcelona in Spain for, for two years on a, on a Marie Curie, uh, fellowship, um, where I worked in a, um, uh, so it's the, this CRG, it's the center for genomic regulation. It's kind of research Institute in um, Barcelona, in uh, James Sharp's lab, who is a, a developmental biologist working on um, limb development. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, that was great. The lab was, um, it was a lovely lab to work in and, and the, the building was amazing. It's, it's down on the seafront. So, you know, we'd have our morning coffee sitting out, looking out onto the Barceloneta beach. Um, Glamorous side of science there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was, you know, the, the downsides to Marie Curie fellowships is they're only two years. So, you know, you start and, and you're, you're already looking for the next step. So, so I did, I, I, so then in the second year of the Marie Curie, I, um, was offered a lectureship in Imperial College in London. Um, so, uh, slightly truncated the Marie Curie to, to start there in, in, that was in 2011. So a lot of diversity then in terms of the, of the 
institutes that you've had the opportunity to, to study and work in, sort of this central theme of development and the, the intersection with, with engineering. What, what are some of the, the main lessons that you've, you've taken into your own lab now here in, in Dublin in the, in the Conway Institute that you might have learned along the way from exposure to places like Boston and Barcelona and, and Imperial? I mean, every, yeah, every place I've, I've worked in has been very different. And I hope that, you know, I'd hope that I'd be able to take the, the, you know, the positive aspects of, of each of them. Um, and the thing is as well, of course, as you get more senior, so I, you know, I, I know hugely more about how things work, um, you know, logistically and strategically from Imperial than compared to say, you know, Boston or, or even Barcelona, because um, you know, once, once you're teaching and doing, you know, um, administration and you, you understand the nuts and bolts, but a lot more. Were there any core elements that you can think of that made, for example, Boston or uh, Barcelona or London work, you know, was, was it, um, passionate leadership or mentorship, or was it more on a sort of, a, an infrastructural side, like having uh, enough access to the funding that you might need to perform the work. I mean, all of these things need to need to come together to synergize for s successful research. But was there any of them that, that stuck out in your mind that was, was particularly a strength of, a, of an institution or a, or a place? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the kind of attitude or the emphasis of, of an institution is so important. You know, like the, the, the CRG, you know, they're a research institute. So they, 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 they were absolutely focused on the research and that's what they, um, and that's what, what they prioritized. The, of course, Spain, uh, Spain has a very challenging funding environment moment. I mean, like a lot of countries, uh, but it's particularly hard in Spain to get research funding. And, you know, so for a while I did explore, you know, staying in Spain because, you know, the lifestyle there, there's lots, you know, there's very lots of positive things about it. Um, but it just, it, it wasn't going to be feasible, um, for, for me at that point anyway. Um, you know, Imperial has a, you know, a huge emphasis on excellence, which is great because it really, you know, pushes it great in many ways because it pushed, you know, really pushes, push me to kind of try and maximize what I could achieve. Um, but you know, that it can, it has its downsides too, you know, if there's a lot of pressure and a lot of it is self-pressure actually, you know, it's not externally, but if you're in a place like that, it, 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 everyone's kind of, uh, working towards a similar sort of, uh, bar. I mean, I think like, you know, the, the one great thing about the CRG and, and also to, to a certain extent, Imperial was, was trying to build, you know, a kind of a sense of community among the researchers. So say for the CRG, you know, every month there'd be a, uh, you know, beers on the, the, the terrace, you know, looking out to the sea for all the whole Institute, you know, so everyone, you know, PhD students and, and up to the, you know, the people running it, the management. And um, so that was really nice, you know, for, for getting to know people and um, especially when so many people be international, you know, to get, sure. to, to get to know new people. Um, a top down approach to, to networking where hmm. everybody shows up and yeah. it's good for the social side, but probably good for making those casual relationships that can, can potentially result in collaborations or new ideas yeah. and things like that along the way as well. Definitely. 
So in terms of your current research area, so that, that has been influenced at least to some degree by your own sort of medical background. Can you just expand on that uh, yeah, a little bit sure. for me, please? Yeah, so so when I was, um, so I, yeah, my current research area is is orthopedics uh, in, and the role of uh, movement and mechanical forces in uh, skeletal development. Um, so when I was uh, a baby, I had a condition called hip dysplasia which is where the hip uh, the is the, the hip joint isn't stable um and um so it was treated uh, was treated when i was a baby um but it wasn't well um it perhaps wasn't optimally treated because when i was 11 then i had a dislocated hip which is a condition that can happen in in 11 or 12 year olds and after that um I was on crutches for two years and there was a lot of visits to the pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And, um, you know, at that stage I was told I'd need a hip replacement in, you know, 10 to 15 years. So, uh, you know, back then I definitely, I already had a very strong interest in biomedical engineering because I knew I was going to have a hip replacement at some stage. Um, I don't quite know why then I diverted off into journalism and advertising in terms of my, you know, um, work experience placements, but I'm glad I made it back in the end to, to biomedical engineering. Um, and as it happened, so, it, so I thought, I kind of thought I'd, oh, well, you know, I'll do, I'll do an MSc in biomedical engineering. I'll, I'll, you know, maybe go into hip replacements, orthopedics. Um, so I have not ended up in hip replacements, but I have ended up in developmental disorders. So, so uh, related to um, the skeleton and to movement. So hip dysplasia that, that I had, that's actually quite strongly related to movement in the, in the womb. So if a baby is breech, which is head up rather than head down, uh, they, they're at increased risk of hip dysplasia. First babies, firstborn babies, who may have a less sort of stretchy environment to move around and they're at increased risk of hip dysplasia, uh, big babies who have less room. So I was a very big baby and so was my sister actually. And then she also had hip dysplasia. Big babies have less room to move higher risk of hip dysplasia. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's, um, and I, I mean, another, uh, the, I mean, a downside of, um, being an engineer working on, prenatal disorders or, or neonatal disorders, let's say, um, is that for the skeleton, they're not normally life-threatening and, and, in, and therefore, well, particularly hip dysplasia, hip dysplasia is never like life-threatening luckily. Um, so, but, but intervention prenatally for musculoskeletal disorders is, is unlikely to happen anytime soon, unless something severe like arthrogryposis, which is where there's multiple joint contractures and, and confect uh, breathing and things like that. Um, so, so is that because intervention is, is not prioritized because it's not life-threatening and that the, 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 the risk, clinicians are, yeah. are disinclined to, to interfere with what will probably be a healthy baby, albeit maybe yeah. with some skeletal issues? I think, like, I think, so the, the, the risk of, uh, you know, intervening prenatally is, is, probably only worth it, well, is only worth it for conditions like heart and brain, gush, maybe things that are, you know, because there's always a risk when, when you're talking about prenatal intervention. Um, but so I had, like in recent years, I've been sort of shifting the focus more to postnatal uh, conditions that, you know, because hip dysplasia, so, you know, I am, I'm also interested, you know, I'm still interested in hip dysplasia, but focusing more on, 
rather than the etiology, which is 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 mostly prenatal, and more about um, diagnosis and treatment, which is postnatal and doesn't require prenatal intervention. Um, another condition I'm interested in working on uh, in collaboration with um, experts, uh, clini- clinical experts, um, is um, metabolic bone disease of prematurity, which is where babies that are born extremely prematurely have weak bones that that can fracture just when you know when they're being handled on on the neonatal unit. Um, to and what I want to do eventually is to see if if gentle physiotherapy can restore some of the, the mechanics that the the babies are missing out on. So in the third trimester, a baby is really pushing against the uterine wall and getting lots of mechanical stimulation there. Uh, whereas if they're on a neonatal unit, they're getting very little stimulation mechanically and that could be contributing to their weaker bones. So, yeah, so that's, so it's kind of a conscious move to, 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 in order to ensure clinical relevance of the work to move a bit more postnatally. I mean, from, from, from the outside, it looks like a sort of a remarkable parallel sort of stemming from your own sort of, uh, medical history to, to then following your, following your interests to, to where you are now. I mean, to, to what extent do you, is that a, a conscious thing or do you think that's happened by, by accident? I mean, yeah, I think it was really an accident. I mean, the interest in musculoskeletal was motivated by my own history. Um, it, it like, I suppose, um, the hip dysplasia thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I am interested. I'm, yeah, I probably have more of an interest in it because of the, the family history. Um, but yeah, but it was mostly by accident. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess it, it does, it gives you a, a, a relatively unique insight into the into the situation and, and might might help with you know increasingly we have patient advocate groups feeding into grants and research to kind of give insights into the, their own experiences so that they can help sh- shape the research better so in in some ways maybe you're your own sort of patient mm-hmm. advocate group feeding into uh, into your, your own research mm-hmm. so we, we've sort of followed your story up as far as uh, as imperial and uh, mm-hmm. you had your had your position there uh, and you've recently moved back to Dublin and uh, have your have your professorship here now within uh, UCD. So, so how has that been setting up your lab? So we're having this conversation here in uh, August 2021. So things with regard to the COVID pandemic are, are starting to improve, um, but it's been it's been a rough couple of years. Uh, health-wise, but also uh, obviously professionally for, for people trying to, to carry on the research. So how have you found that, that transition back to Dublin during this time frame? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been strange. So um, uh, I w- was meant to be on sabbatical from September 2020 to, to August 2021 um, in Ireland. As it, so, th- so it was lucky because we'd already planned to be in Ireland um, in 2020, um, we had planned to come last summer, but then we sort of fled London in March, 2020 with, with few days. Um, we made the decision that we were leaving in, in a couple of days and abandoned everything in our rented house, furniture and everything. Um, and just came back to Ireland. Um, so hugely stressful. Um, but, but the great thing was that when I started in UCD in January of 2021, uh, I was already in the country and that, you know, meant that that made a lot of things much, much easier. Um, 
it, yeah, I haven't, yeah, I still, I'm still, so my first PhD student uh, in Ireland is starting in September, um, so next month, Chi Chi Kennedy is her name. And so I'm really looking forward to that. I feel like then I'll really be properly starting. So she'll be sitting in the Conway. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah. And I've met a lot of a good few people virtually, but like then, you know, I've, most people I've, I've, I've met very few people in person. So it's very strange. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to September when, when. So you, so you haven't seen a normal, a normal work life in, in UCD yet by the sounds of it. So the, the teaching trimester at the start of the year was obviously, you know, under, under restrictions. Um, you've obviously managed to, to, uh, to recruit a PhD student during that time, which I'm sure probably wasn't easy either. And then, like you said, set up the set up the lab and, and hopefully go from there come September. Is that the plan? That's the plan. Yeah. And I mean, so I was on maternity leave from September 2019 and I was due to return back to work at Imperial on like the, I don't know, 20th of March 2020, which and we ended up coming back here on the 19th. So so I haven't been in a normal work life since, I don't know, August 2019. <laughs> we don't, so, we don't yeah. know what a normal work life looks no. like anymore. Yeah. It's, the, it's, the, it's the new normal yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So I know that you uh, have participated in a number of studies over, over the years and uh, that there's been a, an emphasis on trying to maybe recruit diverse groups into engineering. So increasing representation from of, of females and engineering and so forth. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience? My current position, which is a full professor position, that that is was part of the SALI, so the Senior Academic Leader, Leadership Initiative scheme, which uh, was reduced, introduced by Mary Michelle Connor. I think two years ago. I mean, I would never have moved back to Ireland without a full professorship because of the fact that, um, well, different countries have different promotion procedures, obviously in different institutes. Uh, but in Imperial, I was reader of developmental biomechanics. So basically I was one step away from a professorship. There's, there's only one type of professorship there. Um, sure. and so, you know, I would, so it's only because of that scheme that I moved back to Ireland. Um, and so I think, you know, for me personally, it's great. Um, I think it'll be good for the school, you know, the, the School of Mechanical Material and Engineering, who put a lot of work into the application. Um, they they only have, there's one, there's two other female academics. And, um, and you know, in a way I'm not, it's, uh, it's only, I'm not used to that anymore. So in, in the Department of Bioengineering in Imperial, which is, was my home department, um, there was quite a lot of women and uh, now obviously, uh, it's all relative, but, um, it's, it's a big, it's a big issue, you know, like even in biomedical engineering at Imperial, they, they, there was, there was 50, 50 in the undergrads. And then you get this, um, very well described drop off at, at each of the, you know, layers after that, or the kind of steps after that between PhD and postdoc and, um, and then academic and all the way up to senior academic positions, which is why this, Sally initiative was introduced here in Ireland. Um, and, you know, I've talked to you know, particularly female colleagues and friends in academia a lot about this. And um, I, I, what I think is really critical to ensuring diversity of all types is funding at, at is funding. It has to come down to money. You know, you can have all the seminars and 
uh, things you want, but it, it like it, it comes down to money and investment. So, for example, in postdoctoral fellowships that are you know specifically maybe not specifically targeted to 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 diversity, but that somehow are um, there to give a hand up to to people that are disadvantaged in other ways, disadvantaged by the system. Yeah, no, it's it's a challenge. I mean, you've described this this very well-known paradigm of, you know, like you said, equal numbers of academics at a at a particular particular mm-hmm. level. And then as you move up the academic tree, the the relative number of females in leadership positions and at the at the upper echelons of the academic tree are disproportionately small. And this is this is something that absolutely has to be addressed and probably uh, needs to extend beyond, you know, just gender have have uh, sort of minority groups or uh, groups that are not currently represented uh, at at the right levels in, in the in the upper tree. Do you feel a responsibility as a female in a in a senior leadership position within the university to try and affect some change in this regard? I mean, you know, I, I think I, I'm very sensitive to it. You know, any perception that it's up to the women to fix the problem with the women. Um, now, I know that's not what you. I'm sure that's not what you're saying. No, but, no. but like, I mean, I think uh, absolutely. You know, now I'm in the very privileged position of not having to worry about promotion, and um, and you know, I think yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, but I hope that you know all people at that senior level regardless of of uh, gender would feel a responsibility because um you know and you know and then so obviously we're, we're talking about gender but there are all the other diversity characteristics and um we're missing out on on uh you know if, if we have a homogeneous uh, group of people who are running the show you know there's a whole host of opinions and insights and talent that we're losing out on uh, and particularly, you know, for the, the, the students and for just society, you know, to to to, to have it more representative of uh, and of of society, and to have role models there for for all students from everywhere and from all backgrounds. I think the role models is a is a good point because we're sort of as as we're speaking, we're in the middle of the of the Summer Olympics in in Tokyo, and, and they regularly talk about, you know success within a particular sport uh, you know you need to have models or role models there in order to sort of encourage the next generation to go for something that maybe they they wouldn't have thought of at, at that time you know we have our mm. irish boxers who maybe might have been inspired by katie taylor back in the back in the london games and it takes a little while to filter on but you can, you can see evidence of that sort of role model uh, following so it's it's, I think, something that that's very important within the, the university to have role models um, of, you know, different genders and, as we said already, different uh, different diverse groups that they can look up to and not feel like um, it's that you know a particular level is beyond them or, or or unachievable. Certainly not just because of whatever group they happen to happen to fit in. Mm, absolutely, Neve. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat to us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Owen. You've been listening to the UCD Conway Institute Class Acts podcast. A big thank you to the Conway Institute researchers for sharing their stories and to Dr. Owen Cummins 
for chatting with them. Subscribe and follow UCD Conway Institute wherever you get your podcasts.